0: Hello everyone and welcome to Tree Shaker Podcast. Are you a tree shaker or are you an apple picker? At Tree Shaker Podcast, we aim to deliver the real version of how successful women became successful. So say goodbye to that polished and politically correct version. We're giving women the leverage they deserve by being brutally honest about what it really takes to arm you with the tools to do so. I'm Juanita and today we are being joined by Diane Sanchez. Now, I'm really excited about this interview because I've gotten to know Diane Sanchez here in the last year. And the things that I've learned about her is phenomenal. Now, Diane is a proven C-suite executive with an extensive senior management experience in strategic partnerships, P&L, change management, transformation, acquisition, market entry engagement, Transformational technology and innovation. Now that is a mouthful, Diane. But I see that you're coming to us with a wealth of knowledge. Now, I know this all wasn't just poured into you, was it? It took a no. way, 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 away to get started on all of this.
1: Yeah, it's been fun. I think it's been a really a neat journey, and you know people. I I think a a lot of it, too, it's just just been I've been very fortunate where I've been at the right time place at the right time. And there's just been and and timing is everything in the sense of opportunities uh, in the markets that I served in the regions that I served, you know, to keep growing and and, um, experiencing something totally different every time.
0: And, you know, we talk about experience, Diane but your background isn't coming from a big city is it it doesn't it didn't it wasn't something that was just you were let's 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 uh let's use that cliche um you weren't born with a silver spoon
1: no i wasn't i was very fortunate it was um and i was watching the um um I, I was watching a a show the other night and it was and i forgot i have to remember the words but it said i wasn't born rich but i grew up i was born poor but i grew up rich with uh right. family and experiences and i think um and I, that was my situation where even though you know we were probably lower middle income we thought we were upper middle income <laughs> because we grew up in a little town about 3000 people um in south texas and um we were fortunate in, in a way uh, because we were um, we were right close to a, a, what we called a selenese at that time, a Hearst plant. Uh, and so a lot of the property taxes were very high bec- because of that. So we had a great school system. Uh, and that that really made the experience of growing up in a small town very good. Um, and so that that was really nice. And then my family, of course, uh, my parents, both nurses and, and working really hard. But um, always wanted to make sure that we had opportunities to grow both as um, you know, as from an educational standpoint, as well as on a developmental standpoint with music and sports and those type of things. Uh, So we got into everything.
0: So now you mentioned your, both your parents were nurses. How did that come about? I want to know a little bit about your background because, you know, you're talking about being a C-suite executive, right? And everybody mentions, imagines this corporate world being luxurious, you know, high pace and everything. But that wasn't necessarily the model that you received. You mentioned your parents were nurses. How did
1: that come about? I mean, they were both nurses uh, in the sense of, uh, so they were very much into that profession. My daddy, my dad ran the emergency room in Claiborne County Hospital. Mother was, she was in the nursery for 20 years and then she went into intensive care. And it's funny, she retired at 72 from the intensive care ward down in the regional, uh, in the um, Mission Regional Hospital. Uh, Down in the valley, but um, realistically, and then my mother was a. I grew up with my grandmother from the sixth grade uh, on because she was there were five of us, and she ended up having surgery. Mother said, Who wants to go live with grandma? And I said, I do, I do. And I stayed with her from then on. And she was only like three or four blocks down the street, so it wasn't like a major deal, but I sure had my own. She had a little grocery store, and I helped her uh, run the store, and I had my own bedroom. And you know, that was a big deal. I mean, I, I was the only one in the house, and I got whatever I wanted. I remember once. Um, I, I would go whatever and get whatever I wanted to out of the store. And once I got a, a Coke and a, a can of bean dip and I was sitting there and I got tired of the bean dip. So I probably had one little spoonful and she came over there. And she said, nah, she spooned to me that dadgum bean dip. <laughs> so that I would not take things for granted. So it was that kind of a, it was good and a bad experience with grandma because she was immaculate, organized and just disciplined. <laughs> but anyway, that was uh, when I started getting a, a little sense of the business side. I regret that I did not, appreciate the entrepreneurial experience that that presented to me. I mean, it was at that time, uh, that little store was everything in the community other than the big grocery store on the other side of the tracks. Um, And I could have made it easy. uh Uh-huh.
0: What do you mean on the (laughs) other side of the tracks? Because that's, now we all associate the other side of the track as, you know, not such the best place, but what do you mean by the other side of the track?
1: Well, this was a very segregated city. This was in South Texas, and a little town. And the, the Mexican Americans lived on the west side, and the Anglo's uh, lived on the east side, and the African Americans lived in the county. Uh, and it was very, like I said, and the tracks, railroad tracks, were the dividing point of what we called the west side, and then the east side. And and we never called it the east side. It was the west side, or it was the you know the county. So that's really what it was. I mean, it was a very. Sec- it was it was funny because, you know. Everything, you could, you did everything together except socially you didn't date. You didn't, you know, there were, that, those are the sort of the divisions that you did, that were established. And and I was, uh, and that was pretty much, I was shocked at that point that we were still doing that because we were student council president, we were class president, we were all involved in everything, but honor uh, society, but we didn't socially, other than hang out and everything else. Uh, you know, that was, that was the division. And then when I went to University of Texas, I graduated, went to UT. Uh, And I found the same thing was there in going on at the university of Texas with the fraternities and sororities. They wouldn't allow uh, minorities in, on, on, on their, uh, in their, as members.
0: So let's go back to your first taste of your business. Okay. Mm -hmm. You said grandmother introduced you to you and you had a hard lesson in learning. What was some of the other things that came along with it that you didn't realize having that foresight, you know, um, from your grandmother obviously but now being able to reflect what was that first introduction besides the you know the, the moral of never take anything for granted How did I think that the, well, first idea yeah i think the the
1: the takeaway there too was that mother was is very smart she's she was very disciplined and so she set up grandmother's books for her because grandmother was illiterate she she didn't know how to read or write so mother would set up the books and i would keep them and then we would you know i'd work with grandmother on the inventory because grandmother again not being literate she didn't know anything about numbers and so she when we do our inventory she'd get little pieces of paper and put sticks there to count how many of them there were but and so it made it hard for me because she didn't know to do on five to go across but little things like that that you realize number one you and and very you know reporting your taxes all the little things that Mother made sure she did, she filed social security, um, and, and the things that I learned that you can, there are no short, shortcuts in running a business, you have to even, I don't care how smart it is, small it is, you have to do it well, uh, and it really, you know, it was that type, that type of thing, and then negotiating with the, the vendors, you know, whether it was the, the bread, the guy brought the milk or the bread, you can imagine these little stores where these little guys bring the milk, the bread, you order candies for the for the candy um the the counter and that that type of thing so that was always a lot of fun and and how you know some things would turn over and others wouldn't that type of thing but uh so you it, was, learned, it was real fun so you learned quick about supply and demand and that's yeah, interesting
0: but here's I, I, the other thing too is uh-huh. that was risk taking i mean you were a young kid you were t- talk about you know taking on a, a full responsibility so in developing your risk-taking capabilities, because that's really what it was. How did you embrace it? Because you mentioned, just briefly, that you ended up going to UTSA. I mean, to UT UT, right? Right. Now, how did a little girl that lived in her mom's house move to grandma's, help run a small business, not realizing that was one of your skill set, and embrace the risk? And take on UT Austin. How did that come you know, about?
1: I think a lot of it was I mentioned I mentioned school. I mean, I was a, the the all state French horn player. I was the you know. So you you felt you there were a lot of things you took risks on. Um, whether it it was uh, because of the fact that you were trying, you were always pushed to be out there and try to perform and compete. So I felt that UT was always uh, the Austin experience. UT Austin was going to be a phenomenal experience. And I had a girl, my best friend, um, where and I had planned to move up there uh, together. And then she backed out <laughs> right about a month before the semester started. So I, I did it anyway. I, I was never afraid to do things. Um, and maybe a lot of it, like you said, I went to grandmother. I, I was the only one there. And then I in school, we were always doing something to compete um, Whether it was a chess club or you know whatever it was, football with the the band and those type of things, Um, and then all the the really things like running for class president and always being afraid to lose. But fortunately, I never lost. But still, you know, you're always putting yourself out there, and after a while, it becomes normal, uh, you know, to get out there and and um, and and win and lose, you know, and then just keep moving and doing something different. So that I think that helped a lot. Uh, That's why education is so important and a balanced education and experiences in school early on, I think are really important. And then of course, with grandmother being a risk, she was an entrepreneur all her life. I mean, she had a restaurant before this in the Valley. So she she was obviously an entrepreneur herself, you know, in in doing things for her family. She was a a single mother.
0: You know what? And that, you just said it right there. You know, she's always been an entrepreneur, you know? And so that's what you had as a model. But I noticed that at UT, uh, the University of Texas at Austin, you have a bachelor's of arts in International business and general business. Now, was that what you originally started out to because you mentioned you you played French horn, you helped the family you know you were always pursuing uh, you became president. did you just say this is what i 'm going to do this is the field i 'm going to go into it seems easy you know how did that come about because International business, I don't think that's being taught down
1: in the valley, is it? No, it's not. And, um, you know, in, in South Texas, that wasn't even, i mean, we didn't really, we didn't even have exposure. I don't, I, uh, I don't even know any family in Mexico. And I know my parent, my grandparents are both from Leon, uh, Nuevo Leon and from Guanajuato, but we never met any of our family members. So we never traveled into Mexico or, 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 did that, you know, as it relates to under learning uh, anything about another country. So that was new uh, to me, but the, what I did was a lot of it, I think I sort of stumbled into it because of the fact that I, I started um, my degree in or my college years in, in computer science. And at that time that was all the sexy thing. That was what was really happening was computers, um, <laughs> you know, carrying your, your cards and all that. It was just, it, I hated it. I hated it. Uh, So I I was a a computer science major for a year. And then at that point, I said, I've got to do something different. And I was very lucky. Again, I had a mentor, Dr. Nelda Garcia, who was the, I think, the only Hispanic uh, professor in the University of Texas at the time, business school. Uh, And she guided me and she said, look, think about what you want to do. And so I I did a couple of general business uh, initially. And then I said, this is boring. I don't want to be just a generalist. And so then I I pursued the international component because that also was really happening At the time, a lot of activity on international. So I guess a lot of it is you're surrounded. Remember, my parents weren't entrepreneurs. They weren't business people per se. So you didn't have a lot of guidance at home. And in our school, in high school, the only people that got guidance was the valedictorian or salutatorian who always got guidance to go to Harvard and the rest of us, even though You know, I probably could have gotten Harvard. And looking back with my grade points and everything else, my my accomplishments, nobody told me I could. Nobody guided you. You had to just figure it out yourself. Um, So I figured out international was something I really was excited about. And and, um, believe it or not, that degree did not get me into a job in uh, international when I graduated. um, I went into a banking, uh, into Texas Commerce Bank as a a bank officer. But uh, later on, the opportunity came up because of the fact that... um, you know, there were, there were, the markets were opening up, especially in Latin America. And I did speak Spanish, but, which is also very important, very important.
0: But you said that your degree didn't get you into a position. So you didn't go right into your career. Did you no. get an internship? Did you, how, how did, how did, because you said your first position was in banking. Was that what you were pursuing?
1: No, I was really, um, I was not pursuing banking. I would basically, um, was not really pursuing anything. I was pursuing a job and I was pursuing something in an executive capacity. I didn't know that much that I, um, what, the reason I knew that is that when I was at University of Texas, I was very fortunate, um, to have met and worked with Dean George Kosmetsky, who was an extremely important person on campus. He was the Dean of the school of business for the University of Texas. And he, um, he helped me in, the, we, we, we established a, de, a department called the Minor, Minority Student Affairs uh, at the time because I was the, I also founded the Chicano Business Student Association because there were such few Hispanics in the School of Business. But in doing that, I realized the opportunities there were with fast track programs and developmental programs in the, in, the, in the companies that were being offered, which is really sort of your fast track to becoming an executive rather than having to work your way through the ranks. So I was very sensitive to that. And that's, th- those are the type of programs that I pursued for my, for my um, career when I, when I started interviewing. And, and yeah. Texas Commerce had an executive training program. And then um, I was there for six months. And again, I, I didn't like that at all because of the fact that I really wasn't an officer in training. I was um, more of an administrator in, with an officer's title. So I, I uh, went ahead and, and uh, AT&T had been recruiting me for six months. Every month they'd call me to Please go to San Francisco to visit them on their hold officer's on. training program.
0: Hold on, hold on. So you were, you, you believed you were on the executive, you know, track, but AT&T was already trying to recruit you and you're saying for a lengthy time. So you were a risk taker. So what did you do? Did you pursue it? Did you go after it? you go? Yes, this is what I'm going to do. Because it just landed in your lap, right?
1: Yeah, I said, after a while, I mean, the recruiter was very nice as well. And I said, yeah, I'll go. She said, "Why didn't come up, spend three days up in San Francisco and you can invite whoever you want at our expense and just give us a chance, listen to what we have to offer. And and I went up there and then my boyfriend followed, he went up with me as well. Uh, And sure enough, I loved it. I thought it was, uh, who wouldn't love San Francisco at that time as well? And so i took the job and moved across the country um, to to uh to start out with at and in in uh, san francisco in their what they call the leadership continuity program
0: okay and so you packed up everything right your whole household you just you had everything set ready to go right and they were well, just welcome <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah you know I, I tell people and i laugh because uh i think i've shared this with you before is that the recruiter said you're the cheapest move at and ever had it cost them fifteen hundred dollars to move me from Houston at that time, I was in Houston all the way to San Francisco because i had uh, i didn 't even have a bed I had a uh, <laughs> a little hundred dollar table no I think I probably paid twenty five dollars for the little wooden table with two chairs that was lime green and then I had a television in my clothes, and that was it uh, that was all I had and so um, they, that was that was that was fun so it wasn 't a hard move physically I think it was just and emotionally, I was ready to do something I was so excited about trying something different and my parents I had already also in college, my sophomore year, I, I spent a summer in Mexico studying Spanish. So that was my first venture there out. You know. And I also, my parents didn't have a lot of money, so I had $100 to spend the entire summer in Mexico. And we lived with family, so that made it easier. So you, you, know, you already had done something on your own and survived it with very little money. So I said now I was right. making considerably um, good money because at and did pay well at the time. And, you know based relatively speaking so it to me it wasn't as much of a risk um some of the experience i had on my own were difficult but i survived them and that probably made me even more independent as i moved along because i moved with at and i moved every three years two to three years for ten, for almost 20 years i mean what i was wow. there for 17 years so it was just one of those programs where you moved to denver you moved to san francisco you moved to atlanta they would move you in different departments so that you really got to know the company and the experience. Um, That was phenomenal, especially if you're single and running around like that.
0: Well, I want my audience to know that Diane Sanchez is a three-time CEO with global telecommunication companies recognized in the industry for her leadership role in transforming the information communications, telecommunications sector in the American regions. Now, what does that entail? Because the other thing is you've directed businesses in over 20 countries in the American region, as well as some about six Fortune 1000 corporations and subsidiaries. I mean, that's yeah. quite a mouthful and that's quite an experience. Tell me about that experience as far as in your the other 20
1: countries. Well, what I did was what, when I was with at and they were opening up Latin America. So they said, they asked, you know, are you interested in moving and helping start up an operation? I said, absolutely. So when I did that, you know, I, I helped open up Latin America. I helped open up the Mexican market. But so many opportunities came up because other companies would say, excuse me, what are you doing? Would you want to? So what I, call, I did most of my career was I was what you call an intrapreneur. Uh, not an entrepreneur. I was that as well. But entrepreneur is somebody that actually starts a division or an organization within a corporation. So I was the CEO for a lot of these Fortune One Thousand Five Hundred companies, and I started their operations in Latin America. And so that meant hiring, you know, developing, negotiating contracts, you know, reg- regulatory issues, all the things that, that are involved in all these countries. And most of my presence involved either people I had directors in every country or every region and so you'd have you'd really get involved in a lot of the things you work with the ministers of communication the presidents of the countries so it was phenomenal because you were just at the right place at the right time and, and people like you were not very easily accessible that were bilingual bicultural that had the business experience that had the industry experience and so it was fun because we literally, I, and I say this, uh, not lightly, we transformed these countries. Remember, you're going into a region that didn't have telecommunications, it didn't have broadband, they didn't have mobile. Some of them didn't even have phones. Some of them didn't have, even have street addresses and numbers. So you're in there with really the latest technology working for some of the best companies in the world in their sector. And um, it's, it's exciting because, and then you also have money to make these changes, to go in and set up these operations. I mean, it's, it's high risk because you have to perform based on results. But it's also exciting because especially what's wonderful is the people that I was able to work with and hire and who became part of the, the teams that I, I helped manage were just we were having so much fun. We work like dogs, but we, we had a lot of fun as well. I mean, and that's what I found, found was really exciting about the, the industry as well is you work really long hours, but you also have a lot of fun doing it, you know.
0: I want to touch about, I've got on here, it says achieved first movers advantage in Canada, Jamaica, and Mexico with two consumers based in their early stages. You had the first to market in the development of the -the state-of-the-art mobile payment platform in Mexico, Jamaica, and you served over 5,000 customers. Now,
1: tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that was exciting because mobile payments, that was one thing. When I left um, one of the companies, which was uh, Telefonica, I went to, I I was offered a position to run an operations as the president of the global operations for MoZito and it was a mobile payment company. So I thought, wow, how wonderful to be able to provide um, financial services to the unbanked, underbanked. Um, And I thought this, because we knew based on the technology that this was gonna transform the entire world. When people could have access to money and and again, and the flexibility, the mobility that offered them. So that's really what we did. We actually worked with some of the the Jamaican credit unions and were able to introduce that platform into the region. And then I was able to work with um, the consumer packaged goods companies in uh, Mexico, uh, as well as this uh, bank, and then also with uh, one of the largest data. Um, management companies in the world. So those were the things that that I did that I thought was really exciting because you literally are sitting here, number dealing with regulators, you're dealing with, um, with fortune 500 companies to negotiate to try to get a common agreement to try to go into a market together. And then you're also trying to work with, you know, I love that's where I started working with a lot of the mom and pop stores. The little tienditas where people are, you know, some, they, they need a scanner. They need something to be able to do transactions. And they also want what they call loyalty and affinity programs so that customers are loyal to them because of some of the offerings that they have through their, their um, device, their, their, their functionality. So it was a little bit of everything. And that's what's been fun about what I've done is everything comes together that you've learned both from a business sense, from a cultural sense from a technology sense, because you're helping people transform the way they do. They live uh, based on some of the technology partners that, that I was able to work with.
0: Now that sounds polished, great, smooth. However, I know and then in business, especially being a woman, because, you know, we're here about leveraging about what you've done and how you've transitioned and how you succeeded you know how did you handle adversity and doubt because in that environment did you have any because you're a woman going into latin america being some of the being in the decision maker's position did you get pushback was it a little hard going in there
1: you know, it was funny because I expected that. In, and here's this, what I experienced is if you work for a corporation that's highly respected and my companies were always the, the, the number one in their sector. Okay. So that was not hard. The brand was well-known and well-respected, but they had the, your customer, your clients and your elected officials that you work with in these countries had to know that you were respected and you had power. If you had that, they would treat, they, if you could be green and they'd work with you. Um, and I was fortunate that the companies that I worked with did hold me in high esteem, and they, they empowered me to do that. Plus, most of the people that worked for me were men and with me, and the, my guys really took care of me. Um, I, I remember that we, would, we were sitting in some of the, one of the meetings in one of the countries waiting for, I think the prime minister, and the, my guys said, Diane, we're gonna wait 20 minutes, or I think it was 15 minutes, and if they're not here, within 15 minutes if they don't receive you we're leaving because that's a lack of respect and you know to this date i've never had to wait more than 15 10 probably 10 minutes on any meeting and people running late because they have a lot of meetings it's understand- understandable standable at that level but never because of, of lack of respect or anything like that so i can say that I, I have incurred um discrimination and serious issues with within the companies i've worked with especially in some of the countries of companies that i worked with um and it's sadly enough uh, and I, well, I I can't say where, where, but realistically companies, countries that I would have thought would have been more supportive because of who I was in the culture of where I, what I represented, but it was, that was probably more so than with people that I interfaced with. So uh, yeah, it's out there. It's been very difficult in that regard, but it's also, you know, um, you, you just realize as a woman, how much, especially being bicultural, bilingual uh, and having of the sensitivity and the um and identifying with the cultures that we we worked with that you really make a difference especially for american companies i was like wow we were the bridge for the american company to learn how to work in that region and for companies that weren't american to learn how to work in the united states so it was for me i was able to work both i worked for companies that were both in spain and mexico that wanted access to the u.s market and then u.s companies that wanted access to europe and latin america so it was little bit of both it was really exciting
0: you know that's always good to hear because everybody wants that spit polished answer and it's not always like that you know I know that you probably experienced some challenges just like you stated but what do you think is one of the one of the reasons women prevent themselves from being as successful as possible because it isn't necessarily sometimes the environment, sometimes it is the environment, sometimes it is the situation or even you know, the position. But what do you think are one of, the, one of those points that prevents the woman from succeeding?
1: I think we've been cast in roles and sometimes we get too comfortable in those and that we don't feel that we're deserving of being at the table. Uh, and I think that you know, once you're at the table, once you realize the value you bring, and you do it with the right intentions—not from a power mongrel perspective, or you know, hung, trying hungry to try to uh, move up the career—but because you honestly believe. And I've been very lucky. Every job I've ever had, I've loved. You know, has the situation been perfect? No, but therefore you're going to bring the best of yourself forward. And that was the one thing that—that that I was taught early on in my career that I belonged there as an executive, as a person making relevant contributions. And so therefore I always believe and I would never go into any job or anything that I don't feel that I had that power and and the access to do what I needed to do. But I I see that a lot, a lot now. It's unfortunate, I see it now more than I did when I was growing up in my career. I see it, uh, especially in some cities where the women have been put in positions or they've accepted positions in a supportive role when they have all the capability and the resources and the tools within themselves to do otherwise, but but, and a lot of it is in, in, is the fault of the managers as well or people that are, don't let them give them they, they, they themselves want the limelight and they're not giving them the opportunity to be the the shining stars and to grow into that position. So it's a little bit of both. I think um, men have accepted that 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 uh, they haven't consciously thought about it and allowed people to continue functioning the way they do. And women haven't challenged it, and have accepted their roles. Whether it's salary, whether it's positions, uh, that's what I see more now than I did back then. Especially, I see that a lot with the, with the the X generation and the uh, and the millennials, uh, where I'm surprised that they're accepting of subordinate roles the way they are. We didn't in our in our boomer years. We did not accept that. That was not something we did. We were out there to try to make a difference.
0: Right. Okay. So here. I'm going to ask this question because a lot of the times we move in the direction that we believe we're being successful and we kind of have to step back. What was that rift in your life that caused you to reevaluate yourself and really push forward? Because so far I'm hearing a great career and I love hearing that. But I know that there was probably a point in your life that you felt that rift. And you said, okay, let me step back, let me take a look at it. No, this is the direction, this is the right direction for me, and I am not stopping until I achieve it. Do you ever experience something like that?
1: You know, where I, where I, and this has been, unfortunately, later in my life, is I'm an entrepreneur and I, I but I've made a lot of money for a lot of people, but not for Diane. <laughs> I mean, relatively speaking, I mean, how about it? hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, for people, because of my contacts, my resourcefulness. And I've realized, why am I not doing that for myself? And I've tried a couple of times in, in the companies that, that we've talked about. The other things happened that were beyond my control, but um, for, for the company themselves. But I think that's where I am even now, which is the excitement of creating something with others for yourself and making a difference. Uh, and I think that's one thing that we need to do more of. And I, it's funny because that you asked that question because I'm having a lot of conversations and some of the initiative, I'm, initiatives I'm behind right now are doing exactly that where I'm finding a lot of people in my generation that were very successful from a career standpoint, but they were never entrepreneurs in that sense. And now they're saying, wow, there's so much out there, opportunities of things that we can do together to leverage each other's strengths. Why don't we do it? And it's funny because that's gonna see, I think we now that's why I understand some of the I was in New York and one of my daughter's friends said, You're a Zoomer. I said, what's that? Those are people boomers that are zooming through their (laughs) final years. I said, that's us. So the Zoomers are going into that. I think that's probably the second reflecting on where we are now. There's so many Zoomers now that are really looking at trying to, on this last go round in their career, is really making something as a business, as an entity, as a purpose driven initiative for themselves rather than, and I think Hispanics, that's the one opportunity for women and Hispanics. I I don't think we've done enough of that. Uh, We've always been in support roles or we've always been in corporate roles where we have, yeah, you get a salary, but you don't have the opportunity and you've made lots of money for corporations but you haven't made the money yourself Uh, and I think that's where I think that's going to change our our communities if we start looking at things differently from that perspective where why not us why why aren't we the ones making the money why aren't we and I see that all the time when I watch reality shows and I look at you know um, some reality shows about that are very functional and I'm like you look behind the scenes and who's doing the work but the (laughs) Hispanics or you know people of of color and so you realize that that's one thing that's come to me which is why didn't I in my 40s jump off and start doing things for myself and one thing I will tell you that I'm very happy about most of the guys and gals that worked for me did do that and they're in their 40s now and they are successful executives with their own corporations making tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars so I'm glad that at least that, that the people that we that I helped manage Uh, did get it and did do it for themselves. And they've been, they're out there doing that.
0: Oh, so great model, great leader, great example. You gave great wisdom. So people did pay attention, but I kind of hear a hinkling of that's not retirement. I don't hear retirement. Is that true? Because you're, because I don't know. It just sounds like you're not retiring. Is that correct?
1: Well, I've retired three times in my career in oh. the 40s. So it, I think it's, it, I wish I could get it right. Uh, because it's, every time you turn, <laughs> I know, I, seriously, I retired in probably in the 80s. Uh, because my husband and I thought, okay, we have enough money, let's do it. We became soccer mom and football mom. I became, you know, I love, love that. Um, when I, our kids were sophomores to, high, to seniors in high school, we, we just uh, checked out for two years and, and just did that. Um, and then every time you turn around, like right now, it, I know we're going through a crisis, but I, I am so excited about the opportunities that are coming up to, with the new normal. Uh, and a lot of it's gonna be around technology, but a lot of it are, is also based on need um, and timing, you know, where, where things that were not, were acceptable before, not acceptable now. So that presents a lot of opportunities. And if you can help connect the dots for yourself and for people and do it with a purpose, I think that's the point point. and last night i was watching the some of the the, the uh some of the the uh, speeches that were being done with the one of the the conventions the democratic convention and i realized that one of the things that's one of the i think it was uh, vice president biden said is that it's all about purpose and i thought wow it's true because if you have a purpose then it's mm-hmm. it's you're doing it for the right reason and it's so fulfilling and i think that's what's happening now is that you see a lot of movement towards purpose-driven uh initiatives whether it's social or environmental and that's what i think we're going to be all about and i think even corporate america is going to be more focused on purpose as well as well as as profit and and so i think it's just a matter of unlo- those of us that know how to make that happen do it you know my problem is there's so many things that we can do that i just i'm just not going to do everything i'm going to try to focus on one or two things because you can't overextend yourself there's just so many opportunities right now
0: you know and that's very true but Diane, I'm assuming that you, you brought up, you know, retirement, so you're not carrying on the title of CEO or executive or president, you know, and those are all just titles. And I can say that because I'm quite happy, you know, being an entrepreneur myself and being able to move in the direction and not have to really give myself that title that unfortunately brings great respect but it also brings a lot of responsibility is it wrong for me to assume that you don't have a title right now and with that what are you doing then
1: well i don't i I, i'm like you i'm at a point now where i've had the titles and um i see what people do with for people with titles and how it's i don't know i mean it's it's really a struggle with where i don't have a, a, a formal title. I have started an organization called Micro S.A. or Micro S.A. which is basically the resurgence of micro businesses and I am gonna be the founder and the executive director. But the reality is I wish we, we wouldn't. And that's one thing that, that I saw as it relates to uh, early on some, some recruiter or somebody said, hey, think about it, we do this, who are you? I'm, an, I'm the executive director for such and such. No. I'm an executive that or I'm an entrepreneur. You don't have to give yourself a title uh, that to mean something. It, in other words, we should focus through. I'm an attorney, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor. It's it, and and what we do is a, in the business world is we give ourselves titles based on hierarchy uh, where we should really identify who, who, who are we? what do we do for a living or what what is it that we do professionally? And that's where, you know we've uh, i find that it's 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 been really exciting because i've been in in jobs where i've had a very high level titles and a lot of responsibility and then when you're out of that job you find that people don't seek you out because you don't have that title anymore so you struggle with how much of that do you want to hold on to and who are you uh, realistically so that you can continue to contribute without a title and that's the biggest challenge is how can you contribute and how do you how you, you because you need to leverage your position in the community or your, your, your experience to make things happen. So in some form titles are necessary, but they're also not relevant if they, if, if people don't know better to realize that that title really doesn't mean what they think it does. You know what I'm saying? And that's where I'm seeing a lot of opportunity right now. There's a lot of people in the community that don't have titles anymore, but they have the experience and the credibility and the credentials to go way beyond in con- contributing to what we have to do as a, as a community. And that, that's what's exciting for me right now is, is identifying those people who really can weigh in um, that would not, I find that there's more there than there are people with titles that can contribute uh, right now, you know, based on where I'm seeing. So it's, 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 in, it's gonna be an interesting um, phase, I think of my career. Now you're
0: saying career and you mentioned micro essay. Tell me about micro essay. What direction is it taking
1: you in? You know, one thing I did the last six months, uh, I'm four months, probably five months, is I started, and I would started doing this when I was with the Hispanic Chamber, is really focusing on the um, the small micro businesses in the community. Because I realized that for some reason, they were not um, associated with any of the, the business organizations in town uh, uh, at all, affiliated. And I said, why is it? And so I knew that they, having you know, small businesses ourselves and our family and all. I know it's so time consuming, it's hard to be involved. But w- what could we do to really engage them so that there would be value in, w- in services that could be offered? And uh, I started working with um, Shirley Gonzalez on the west side and looked at, especially now with the virus and the, the COVID, with COVID, what could we do to help them? And I realized that there, were, there was some serious funding by the federal government, the Paycheck Protection Program and the emergency, the Emergency Injury Disaster Loans. But these businesses didn't really know how to access those. And I said, well, let me start working with them directly. Because one thing I did realize is that we have a lot of census data in the city, but we don't know who those those names are not associated with those companies. So we have 5,000 small businesses in the West Side, but we don't have their names per se right. uh, by sector. And so I started working with them and I realized, oh, my God, these businesses have everything they need. They're in good standings. They have their tax tax, they're filing their taxes, they're registered. They they're just very very viable businesses. They just happen to be micro businesses, but they don't so, know what they don't know. So, are you
0: telling me that this CEO that has gone into twenty different countries has gone back to grassroots, knocking doors, talking to people on a one to one basis? Is that what you're telling me you've done now?
1: Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. We and that's been the most most successful part of what we do uh, of, of, that anybody's doing right now and with micro businesses that we literally are working directly with these businesses on a one-to-one basis and helping them and then they the, you know behind them comes four to five and so that's really what what I'm doing I th- I love it I, I absolutely love it but I think there's a lot of opportunity um, not only you know because it's an underserved market but the potential of the what we call inclusive uh, economic growth for the city, I mean, you got to realize that probably ninety-something percent of the jobs are created by this segment of the market, and they're the most underserved and underrepresented. And I just think that that's huge, not only for us, but for every city in the United States, and for Hispanics, especially Hispanics, uh, because we are going through a transformation, and we cannot let go of that culture, of that um, that legacy that that brings in these businesses uh, to our communities and the experience that that brings for neighborhoods. And that really worries me. It worries me a lot because one thing I have done in corporate America is I've worked, I've had responsibility for just about every major city in this country. I've built infrastructure. So I know everything from Chicago, Denver, Atlanta. I've seen them. I know them. uh, And I've seen how some of the cities have lost their identity uh, because they haven't held on to the small businesses and the micro businesses and the communities. I saw that in San Francisco. I lived in in the Pacific uh, Heights area and, and the marina, and I saw how that whole streets were just transformed with fast food chains and things like that. And I said, oh my God. And, and we can't let, have that happen to San Antonio. We've got to hold on to it. And that's the part of it. That's the West side. It's the West side and some of the, the communities we live in. So what do you think is a,
0: a tribute to the success of these micro businesses in spite of
1: COVID? You know, there. If they're independent in the sense of they're independent and they're viable, bi- they're, uh, I think there's an, there's an ecosystem where they support each other in the sense of the, the, the um, what you call the multiplier effect. So they buy from each other. They they use each other's services, but they're very independent and they're very disciplined as businesses of, of, and that's one thing I found is that they may not know how to represent themselves on paper. They may not know how to fill out applications, but they sure they'll know of everything they need about their own business. And what it I mean, these people have been at it for 10, 20 years. I mean, it's not, they're not, they're people that have been made a lively, they've, they've made their lives out of it and they're not in poverty. They're successful business people in their own rights. And I think that's very important. The only difference they have that we have that what we need to do is help them get resources and ask and networking. You know, it's really funny because that's always been my strength. They need to be have access to a network. Whether it's supply chain, whether it's uh, financial assistance, they need to know what's out there because they're so consumed in their day-to-day activities that they don't have the time or the luxury or the resources to do that. And that's what I think we can do with micro it's focus on the micro business, create the by sector what it takes for them to be viable, and then in, and provide you know resources with, so that they can grow and sustain themselves. And so my job right now is to help give them access, and what's really exciting is that I've touched about 500 small businesses, almost 99% of them have gotten money from the federal programs that we've uh, introduced to them. And from then, they're hungry, then they understand, oh, I understand, and then they come back and they ask, and I get calls 24 seven, but I'm always there. And I, every time I touch a customer or a, a small business, I put them in my phone, and I, I when they call me, I know them by name. <laughs> I know by name because it's, you have, that's what it has to be. It's a community we're creating. We're, we really, uh, that's why I said it's the resurgence of micro businesses. We're creating a community and in a community, you know, so-and-so, Hey, you know, I'll be there. We'll get that. Or let me get this to you. And it's so much fun how you're helping them connect each other. The one thing I did last week, which was really exciting. I was able to help a lot of trucking companies and truck drivers. And I said, Hey, did you know that so-and-so does transmissions? And did you know that so-and-so has got five trucks? And and then they came out and they said, you know, there's 60 of us of companies like us in this whole area in this corridor in the west side. Did you know that? I mean, I, I assure you that a lot of people in City Hall don't know that. So it's more like we need to we need to take the time to really know who we are and what we have and how we can support each other. Because the excitement is that there's business out there. We just have to sort of help cultivate it and help people learn how to use the resources that are out there. And then the last thing that I'm excited about is the technology. And I find having worked in other countries uh, that are very progressive, like Colombia or, or Spain, you know, España, even some of the European countries, France, that they, they're using technology for small businesses so much ahead of us. And if we can bring some of that as these companies come online, you know, to teach them, okay, all your forms that you're going to need to apply for a loan or to file taxes, guess what? Use system XXX or use Salesforce or whatever it's going to be. Uh, that's really where I think is going to be exciting because that's going to make a big difference in our community once people embrace that uh, and learn because they're very adaptive to technology. That's obvious based on the, the penetration of mobile uh, services in the, in the Latin market, and the Hispanic market.
0: Absolutely. Now, I hate to bring this to an end, but everything that's wonderful and great has to come to an end. I want to know... You know, because we all know that through reading, experience, exposure, mentorship, development, those are all great. But we've always been taught that the more you read, you know, the more that you're exposed to. Because sometimes that key person doesn't necessarily show up to you in real physical form. And what are some of the things that you read that maybe our audience can refer to and would uh, enjoy maybe learning something?
1: In the sense of the, I, I, I lost you on there. You said basically what is my, what have I, what have I, do have I read the book that I read?
0: Yeah. What is your go-to book? What is your go-to book for knowledge and, and just guidance when that magic person doesn't appear instantly to you?
1: Yeah, I think I, I'm not a person that reads fiction. I read nonfiction. I love to read nonfiction and, um, and one of the books that I think resonates most with me, and I've, I really look at it, and I did a lot, uh, did this probably, started reading this book maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago. But it's a called, it says, it's Whatever It Takes by, it's Jeffrey Canada's um, Quest for Change in Harlem in America. And it's written by Paul Toph, Tough T-O-U-G-H. Um, and, and the reason I love it, it's really the transformation of Harlem from the educational uh, perspective, is um, Jeffrey took. 98 blocks, square blocks of New York, and really tried to look at what he says is, is uh, poverty cyclical and try to drive change into, into all the, the pieces. And that's exactly what I'm talking about with the micro businesses, is that you can't just give people money and write them a check for like what we're going through right now with COVID. It's not about giving them the money. It's about helping them learn uh, how to utilize that and what what, how to extend that and in, incorporate that into what they do with their, with their revenues and the businesses they run and using other resources, whether it's networking, supply chains, that's what's going to transform our micro businesses and that's what's going to transform education. And what Jeffrey did, which I thought was outstanding, is he literally brought in some of the most powerful wealthy people in New York to invest in what he was doing and buy into it and the people that had influence in the educational system um, as well in the community. So, in other words, how do you teach parents in poverty to dedicate, prioritize kids' education? How do you make them relieve some of the stress that they have in their in survival, so that the kids get foods? You know, it's it, it was that type of mentality that he had. He was so advanced in his years, and I think that I think I thought that was inspiring, inspiring for me, based on looking at it from a broader perspective, because it again takes a village concept, but it's an it's the whole ecosystem, the whole environment that's got to change, and who are the stakeholders in that environment that have to come together, that at the private and the public sector, uh, and that's one thing that I think we don't do enough of. We don't engage the private sector, and not from a philanthropic standpoint, but just you know from an investment standpoint, they are interested in your your community um, for all the right reasons. Why don't you bring them in so that they can you can leverage their their um, uh, capability and, and investment into the community. So that's the book I, I like the best for so far. You know, uh, I read a lot of stuff. I read a lot. I read The Economist. I read The Atlantic. I, I, I just read a lot because I love to see what other people in the world are doing uh, outside of the United States. I learn probably more there than I do from things that are being done in the U.S.
0: Absolutely. So definitely expansion, exploring, and innovation is definitely your strong suit. Now, It has been amazing having you on here, Diane. And for my audience, join us. If you didn't get an opportunity to join us during this time, but join us and and hear what Diane has to share with us. We always look forward to having you join us at our next sessions and taking the time to learn, not just for yourself, but maybe share in with someone else. Diane, I want to finish out with what is a good, piece of information that if you could go back and tell yourself when you were first starting this journey, that you would want to tell yourself?
1: Hmm. A good piece of information. Um, I'm just trying to think of, of, um, I, don't, I can't think of any th- information, uh, I, I do, my biggest bl- saying in life right now is, has been for a while, life begins at the end of your comfort zone, is, and that's to your point where uh, risk taking and all that, when you're uncomfortable, that's when you start growing, but the other, the only information that I would say that I think has been relevant, that I wish I would have done earlier, I wish I would have pursued my MBA, I wish I would have gone to Harvard, I wish I would have really had a strong, strong handle on finances. I'm in private equity and I do a lot of that, but uh, I wish I would have done it earlier in my life. Uh, And I think numbers don't lie. And so I I, I encourage people that the more you can expose yourself to financials and to numbers and, and, and use that as a guide, because those are very real metrics that you can live by. Uh, the better off you're the more successful you're going to be in the business side anyway. And then the more realistic you're going to be based on where you are in life as well on your financials.
0: Absolutely. Numbers do not lie at all. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. You have been introduced to Diane Sanchez, uh, a three-time CEO. Definitely enjoy yourself as you hear some of her words, of wisdom and her experience. And we always look forward to you joining us at our next episode. And remember to ask yourself constantly, are you a tree shaker? Are you an apple picker? I'm Juanita with Tree Shaker Podcast. Have a blessed day. Thank you.